Bibles. We're going to get into chapter 16 today, the text of Scripture we all read earlier. And if you were paying attention when you read this text of Scripture, you probably noticed that it's a little bit interesting, um, a little bit ugly, a little bit dark. And it is. We are actually going to be examining this text expositionally for the next two weeks. Um, that wasn't my plan in the beginning, but as I began to read and study the text, I, I began to see I think we need a couple of weeks to fully understand not only the, the interpretation of what's happening here, but also the theology and the practice for our life as well. Uh, we just ask God's help on our time before we dive into God's Word this morning. Father, help us as we come to your word. These are your inerrant, infallible, inspired words. This is the record you wanted us to read and hear, as well as countless others around the world. So this is the Spirit's work. I pray then that your Spirit would continue that work of understanding and illumination as we read and study this text today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Where does this story read about Abram, wife Sarah, her maid Hagar, uh, the immorality that takes place, the son that is born, all of that, where does that fit in the surrounding context? Uh, remember, about ten years before this, God had called Abram, his wife Sarah, out of the land of Ur, which was a Chaldean, that's over in modern-day um, Iran, uh, sorry, Iraq, that region of our world, called them over to Canaan, modern-day Israel, in order that God would give him a promised covenant. The promised covenant was blessing, was the overall heading, and then that in, in, included land and offspring or seed. In chapter 12, we find that this is given to them, and then we see a little bit of a little bump in the road when they head down to Egypt because the drought is in the land and they come back up after another ugly sort of affair. And then God comes to Abram there and he says, I have given you this land and the sea. Another sort of uh, unique situation takes place in chapter 14 where we see a courageous Abram chasing down mighty kings and rescuing his nephew Lot from them. And then Abram worshiping Yahweh and worshiping him through the priests of Yahweh, Melchizedek. And then last week, we looked at chapter 15, and we saw God once again give this covenant promise to Abram that he would indeed give him land and seed. But this is bigger than Abram. This is innumerable seed and a land that extends beyond the, the boundaries of even Canaan than Israel now. This is a spiritual and eternal promise that all who believe like Abraham or in believing faith with Abram, they are his seed and they will inherit the land of eternal life. And this is being made very clear when God then cuts this covenant. We have that very strange night that we looked at last week with, with, with animal sacrifices and unique things happening. And the bottom line is that God assures Abram you will have the seed, you will have the land, it's bigger than you. God himself will assure it's going to come to pass. We have that very powerful verse in Genesis chapter 15 that is, becomes a setting for all of humanity 
and those who would follow Yahweh, the Lord God. Abram believed in the Lord, and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Not Abram worked, not Abram impressed, but Abram believed. And so we see that this righteousness from God comes through and on the basis of faith alone. But what happens when that faith grows weak? What happens when it seems like maybe the faith is not as strong as it once was? Enter Genesis chapter 16. Our story here, as I said, is ten years have passed since that first meeting with God. We know that because in verse 3 it tells us that they've been ten years in the land. By this time, and after going through all these troubles and hardships, it does appear that Abram and Sarah are inheriting land. They've become the most powerful uh, tribal chief, you could call them, Malachian kings in the region. People want to be friends with Abram. Very rich. The word used even in this text for, for Sarah is mistress, or that Hebrew word means the queen, the lady. Very wealthy at this point in their life, and God has blessed them, and they have the land. Ten years and they finally got it. It seems like it's coming to them. But the seed. You see, the way it works with the promise of land is the older you get, the longer it takes, the more land you possess, the more likely it is for your offspring to inherit that land. The problem with offspring is the older you get, the opposite happens. The likelihood of having seed is diminishing year by year. And if we calculate the times right, Abram is about 86 years old, and Sarah is about uh, uh, 76 years old, 75, 76 years old. The way the New Testament puts it is that this now has not only become an improbability, but it has become an impossibility. The New Testament says that Sarah was beyond the years of childbearing, meaning she no longer could bear children. So now the promise that God said seems to be a mistake. Or something's wrong with it. It's not going to work as God said. So we have in this text in verse 2, Sarah takes the lead here, and she has an idea. There are two parts of this text. Verses 1 through 6 is Sarah and Abram's big plan. The king. The second part of the text is 7 through 14. Verses 15 and 16, the last two verses sort of sum up kind of put it in the context. But the main of the text, 7 through 14, is Abram and Sarah are nowhere in the picture. It becomes an expression of God's mercy when Abram and Sarah's scheme doesn't work. And that's what we're going to divide our sermons in. Today, the sermon is going to be actually a little bit interesting because we're going to be ending on a dark note. We're going to be ending with the failure of humanity. Next week, we'll finish the story with the mercy of God. But this is important that we understand this text. As you read, and we read earlier, what we see in the first half of the text is the weak faith as Sarah and Abram make their plans and their scheme. And what we see in the next text is the merciful God. But what do we do with biblical texts like this, 16, 1 through 6, when the heroes aren't so heroic? When it's ugly, sexual immorality, unbelief, lack of trust, Anger, harshness, unfairness, all of this comes up as things. And it's not the bad guys doing all that. 
but the good guy. What do we do? What do we do with ugly texts of Scripture like this? This is perhaps not related to the story itself, more just a theological disposition I'd like to encourage you to. But ugly biblical narratives, I actually enjoy them. I enjoy them, first of all, because it gives me a greater confidence in the raw veracity of the biblical text. You see, if you're writing a history for your peoples and your ancestors, and it's written in such a way as to promote you as the most important people in the region, you generally leave out these kinds of stories. You don't write about the failures of your ancestors. You only write about their successes. However, we know human history well enough to know that there is no such thing as only successes when human people are involved. And so, the Spirit of God, as the author of this text, paints the picture, lets us know the history, or as one individual long time said, it paints the biblical heroes with their warts and all. Honestly. So it gives me a little greater confidence in the veracity of the text when it actually tells me about that some good people did some bad things. Helpful. But the second reason why I think these ugly texts are helpful and why I actually enjoy them, them is because I see myself more clearly in them. I don't know about you, but often I become discouraged when I read about the great victories of God's people and I look at myself. I know we're not supposed to look at ourselves, we're supposed to look at Jesus, but I'm human, I do it. And look at myself and I go, that's not me. You know, it's great when we see, we read the history of the Apostle Peter. It's not in the scripture, but in, in tradition or in, in, in the history books, being martyred and saying, don't even crucify me like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to die like him. We don't see ourselves there. But we see ourselves in the biblical text with Peter when he's denying and saying and afraid of the maid and all that sort of stuff, right? And I think that's why it's encouraging to me. Because I see Abram and Sarah in this text, and I see godly people who we just read believed in the Lord and it was credited as righteousness who are now expressing doubt and weakness and error. And they're taking God's things into their own hands and trying to make things happen according to their timetable. You ever done that before? Ever felt that before? It should be an encouraging text. Martin Luther, the great reformer, um, preached about Genesis 15, and he preached a sermon, year, of course, 500 plus, or almost 500 years ago. Um, and in this, he emphasized sola fide. It was a sermon about Romans and Genesis. Faith alone. Abram's credit in righteousness. But the same reformer also had another Latin phrase that he often thought about, and it was this phrase, simul justice et peccador, or literally, simultaneously justified, yet sinful. And both are true. Genesis 15 and 16 are true. Faith alone. Abram believed God. It was credited in his righteousness. And he sinned encouraging to me. And I guess that brings up an important thing in case you were wondering. In Genesis 16, we're going to work through this text and talk through the story, but I think it needs to be said on the outset that Abram and Sarah are sinning in this text. They are. Um, 
if we take, and we're going to try to explain the context a little better so we can have a little understanding and even perhaps sympathy for them. Um, but let's not confuse sympathy for people who are struggling and battling as if it's not sinful even when they do. And however you look at it, whatever reasons may be behind all this, Abram and Sarah promote and commit sexual immorality. And according to Hebrews chapter 13, that's always wrong regardless of the motive and the reason. Marriage bed is undefiled. Adulterers God will judge, it says in Hebrews. So this is not, we can't spin this, nor can we even want to, spin this in such a way that it's like, well, maybe they actually were doing the right thing here. And God, no, they did the wrong thing. The sinning. So let's go back and think through the story. I'm just going to retell it because we already read it. So 10 years, and Abram's 85, Sarah's 75, the land promise seems possible, even likely. The seed promise seems impossible. Can't happen. Sarah recognized. She tells Abraham, I know that Yahweh, the Lord, has made me barren, has restrained me, has kept me. Now, we could read into that that he's upset at the Lord, or we could read into that that he's just stating a fact. I don't think it's wise to do either. However, given the fact of what follows, it seems that Sarah's a little bit bothered by this. So I don't think that's primarily a, a word for somebody who's rejoicing or giving thanks in all things or just recognizing God's sovereignty. Given the context, this is a bad thing that the Lord has afflicted her with in her mind. The Lord has not given her children. And possibly blaming him, at the very least, you could see in this story, Sarah's response told, if you want something done right, you know, you've got to do it yourself. And so she comes up with a plan. See, she has this young, fertile maidservant, this Egyptian woman named Hagar, ironically, likely becomes Sarah's servant from the last time they had a dealing with Egypt in Genesis 12. Um, we'll get to that later. But Sarah proposes the idea of surrogacy to Abram. To help God fulfill his promise. To help him out. Now I need to break very briefly and explain what I think is, is something that would help us put it in context. Not necessarily um, justify anything. But the context of of the sexual relationship, culturally speaking. Uh, God has given humanity sexual relationship for two purposes. To build, they're both building. To build intimacy in marriage and to build a family in marriage. You could use two other words, just this is a very brief summation. Pleasure and uh, procreation. Or to say, pleasure and the possibility of procreation, because as we see in the text, God is the one who opens the womb, right? could go in an entire lecture about the cultural context, the understanding of, we're not going to do that today, though. As you know, as a, I enjoy those sort of like cultural lectures and thinking through that. just want to point out this, that I believe that our modern Western culture has completely overemphasized and even perverted sexual relationship to make it singularly and only about pleasure. And not even in the marriage, just as the pursuit of pleasure, even identity as pleasure. In other words, they've overemphasized or twisted the build intimacy part to make 
the idea that sex is enjoyment is sort of the function of our culture. Um, you could understand it this way. Uh, if sex is for enjoyment only, then the only thing that I suppose matters is consent. And that's where our, our culture is today. But it would be incorrect for us to automatically assume where our culture overemphasizes or devalues something is the exact same thing the way a different culture in a different part of the world 4,000 years ago would view it the same way. I believe that in the ancient and custom scholars that would say the same thing, something I've, things I've read, in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, there was an overemphasis on the procreative possibility. So if sex has the two purposes in it, building intimacy, pleasure, um, possible procreation, a progeny, those are the two purposes, whereas modern world has sort of swung this way to the extreme, they seem to, in the ancient cultures, have swung to the procreative element of sexuality to the extreme. This is why, according to some scholars, why polygamy was so rampant in all those Middle Eastern cultures. Because it wasn't really about the pursuit of pleasure. It was about making sure you have progeny, making sure you have legacy, making sure you have your heirs to follow you. Furthermore, it's the whole, when you get into that whole sort of really weird, ugly, biblical stories about concubinage and all that sort of stuff, it was about that. Concubines were in order to ensure that there was offspring, there was heir, because there's another problem in the ancient culture. Sometimes the infant mortality rate was rather high. In other words, one cannot erase God's intent in a sexual relationship. Sex is both in marriage. It is enjoyable intimacy, and it is procreative possibly. That needs to be kept in mind. You can't erase it. Even in our story, even though this is all about procreation and surrogacy, not at all about a romantic liaison here, Sarah even still says at the end, I shouldn't have given her to your embrace, using a very intimate word. <laughs> you still can't erase what it is, right? Just like today, even if our culture is really extreme on the whole pleasure part, people still want to have kids. It's still part of the situation, the way God made it. My point is this. When you read the story, don't think of romance. Don't think of Hagar as the seductress. Don't think of Abram as like, sounds like a good deal to me. That wasn't it. That wasn't the concept here. It was surrogacy. How do we help God with his promise? How do we create something, produce something? How do we do this? They likely then did not view this solution as immoral. Though I think they were wrong. They weren't viewing it through the lens of immorality or morality. They were looking at it through the means of survival. It made sense. It was culturally appropriate. In fact, I was reading some, um, some scholars about ancient culture and their views. In fact, the scandal, it was more scandalous in the culture to not have the air than sexual immorality. In other words, the women surrounding the water cooler were talking about Sarah's barrenness as a scandal more than before, more than they were about the whole Hagar affair thing. That's the bigger scandal. Gordon Wenham, probably the leading um, scholar in Genesis, wrote it this way. It was a serious matter for a man to be childless in the ancient world, for it left him without an heir. But it was even more calamitous for a woman. To have a great brood of children was the mark of a success as a wife. 
to have none was ignominious failure. And the whole reason I do this is not to justify, but we want to try to understand the biblical characters a little bit. Understand the pain that was in Sarah's heart and mind. In that culture, she would rather be dead than not have an heir. Rabbinical literature further expresses this, even suggesting that after ten years, barren women could be, liter- could be legally divorced. Well, what do we have in our text? It's been ten years. Perhaps that's in Sarah's mind. He just throw me out. I haven't given him, I haven't done my job as a wife. So, the plan is agreed upon by Abram. He'll have sexual relations with Hagar, a fertile Egyptian, and hopefully they can have a child. Now understand then what was going to happen then if this is surrogacy, and that's what it was, then the concept is when the child was born to Hagar, it would be Abram and Sarah's child. That was the idea. It wouldn't be Abram and Hagar's. As the servant, she would give the child over like a surrogate would. Sarah's got it all worked out. She's going to be a mom. But there is a way that seems right to a person, a man, a woman, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Because you see, promises are meant to be received with thankful hearts. Promises are not meant to be produced with human hands. The massive misunderstanding of promise and work. Well, what happens when this all takes place? Amazingly, Hagar conceives. From the text and from the context and from everything else we read, it seems like this surrogacy took the first time. This gave, it seems like from the text, this gave Hagar quite the boost. I imagine her saying, at least under her breath, who has the favor of the gods now? The lady of the house is barren, and I go into the master of the house, and I have a child. It would be impossible for Hagar to not be lifted up with this sort of cultural pride, given the pressures about offspring and heir in the culture. And so she is. She's lifted up and she's like, this is awesome, I win. We know this because the text says that when it happened, when she conceived, that her mistress, that Hagar's lady, that be Sarah, became despised in her or Hagar's eyes. So if you're reading this, it's the idea that Hagar begins to despise now Sarah. Now that word despise is a very interesting word. It means to look lightly on, to look down on. Um, it's even used in some contexts to refer to curse. Whatever, whether she actually cursed with her lips or not, the idea there is that Hagar said, thought, Sarah's cursed and I'm blessed by God. And she liked her status. Especially there's a little clue in the text that it says that she became Abram's wife. Now that's interesting because that wasn't the way the surrogate was supposed to work. 
I don't want to paint Sarah in a really bad picture and Abram in a really good picture because there's some things we're going to talk about with that later. But it just seems like from the tenor of Abram's life, that's sort of the kind of guy he was. He seems like a very compassionate individual for others. Um, we'll see this son of immorality later on burying his father Abram with his other son, Abram's other son Isaac, and weeping over him. So in other words, he was that kind of dad that was like, no, she's now got my child, I'm going to take care of her. And her son, the one to be, my heir, he's there, I'm going to go over and above and make sure that Sarah didn't like this. This new status that Hagar was enjoying and obviously expressing her new status above the lady. So, Sarah comes to Abram. And once again, I don't want to be too hard on the patriarch or Mrs. Patriarch, but um, because my question, if we ever get too harsh, is to say, have you ever thought you had a really great idea, and after it happened, you said, oh no, I do not like where this is going at all. I honestly think that's exactly what's going on with Sarah. She's like, wait a minute, this didn't work the way I thought it was going to work. So she comes to Abram, and the first thing she does in verse 5 is she says, my wrong will be upon you. Now, that could be misread. Literally, it says, the wrong done to me on you, Abram. So she's not saying, I did wrong, and that's your fault. She's saying, wrong is being done to me, and that's on you. She blames Abram. Um, what, is, what wrong is she referring to? That word wrong there is the word hamas in the Hebrew, and it means violence. Now, it's very unlikely that Hagar had resorted to physical violence against Sarah. But that's what he's referring to in the context, because it wasn't the sexual union that upset Hagar so much, or upset Sarah so much. It was being despised by Hagar that upset her, right? And that's what she's describing as the violence. Probably verbal violence, assault, the despite, the, 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 the um, if you want to give the benefit of the doubt to all parties, Hagar now walking around the tent like she owns the place. Sarah views that as violence against her. And she says, that's on you, husband. She then also says, and I think this is important, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Eve. She also says, I gave my maid into your embrace. So she blames Abram, and she blames herself. I shouldn't have done this, but I did it. You shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done this. That's like I said before, that word embrace is the word lap or bosom, and that is a more intimate word, and so it seems like she's also not only upset about the mistreatment or the, the fact that Hagar conceived it didn't work out according to plan, but also like you can't erase the reality of a sexual union and the intimacy that follows. She knows that. Now, Hagar and Abram are closer than they were before. But then she also says, the Lord judge between you and me. Now, that's an interesting phrase, and it's a very common Old Testament phrase, and essentially what it is is an individual says that. They're saying, one, I appeal to Jehovah to plead my case. But often it's also used even as a sort of a, um, a euphemism for it's God's fault. You, the Lord takes He'll deal with this. He's one of many barren. He's going to figure out, he's going to sort it all out. I'm out. So, 
understandably, Sarah's a little bit bitter about the whole situation. Now, Abram responds. Because in this text, it does appear that Sarah is saying a lot of wrong things and doing a lot of wrong things. We might excuse Abram's response here, but we ought not to. But his response is actually a little bit of a snarky in the Hebrew, a little like play on words, sort of a retort back to her. He says, she's your maid. You did what you, you're the one that came up with it. She's your maid. And he says, um, she's in your arms. That, it's not the exact same word, but it's a similar word. It's a play on words. In other words, you, you gave her to my embrace. She's in your arms to do what you want. And he says, do what pleases you. Do what is good to you. Now, he's not, I don't think, saying hurt her. He's saying, hey, i got nothing to do with this. Which, what I, like I wanted to say, why we might be harsh on Sarah, but not Abram in this context, that, that's not right. No, like, Abram, you're a part of this, right? First of all, Sarah approached you before it. You agreed to it. Things are going badly, and now you're stepping out and saying, hey, I'm cleaning this matter. No, you're not. Nobody is. And so Sarah responds wrongly even further. She says, and she deals harshly with Hagar. What that means, we don't really know for sure. Like what the extent of that was because we weren't there. But we can make some guesses. The pregnant Egyptian woman who's living in the tent of one of the wealthiest individuals in the area who has the protection of the patriarch thinks it's probably better off for her to run to the wilderness to get away. Must have been a pretty harsh treatment. Now, we find out later in the text she goes down toward Kadesh. In other words, this is the road that goes down to Egypt. So most likely, she's like, I'm going home. And she becomes a runaway servant to go back to Egypt. And that's the end of the narrative regarding Abram and Sarah and Hagar. In verse 7, it's right up with Hagar meeting the Lord. Which, that's for next week, but just a quick, like, so you know what goes on here. She's down there at a well of water, a spring of water. The angel of the Lord, first time the angel of the Lord appears in Genesis. First um, time the angel of the Lord speaks to an individual in Genesis. Very interesting. Next week. And God is out mercy to the Egyptian servant of the patriarch. Which is interesting because God had self-obligated himself to Abram and Sarah through covenant. He'd made no such covenant with the Egyptians. And yet, full of mercy and pity and provision and care. Basically tells her it's going to be okay. Go back. You'll be protected. Like I said, that's for next week, so we'll stop there. 7 through 14 drips with sovereign mercy. If 1 through 6 drips with human fallibility, 7 through 14 drips with sovereign mercy. Just kind of think about how that story then comes together. Unfaithful people, faithful, merciful God. So what do we do with this first half? What do we do with it all? As I said before, now that we've talked through the story again, it's kind of an ugly ordeal, isn't it? 
first of all, one of the things we can do is we can recognize that often in the Scripture there is this really cool parallelism that takes place. And maybe, you hadn't, maybe it's already sort of like happened in your head a little bit working through this, but did you notice the sort of parallelism between an event similar in Genesis chapter 12, a few chapters before that, with one major reversal? Abram's the primary error, bad guy in that one. Sarah's the primary uh, antagonist in this one. So, for lack of another way of saying it in very brief sort of expression, Oh, good. So, both Father Abraham and Mother Sarah fail. But look, think through the parallelism with me for a minute. In, in Genesis chapter 12, the land promise is threatened. A drought takes the land. So what does Abram do in Genesis 12? He flees to the fertility of Egypt. In Genesis 16, the seed promise is threatened now because of Sarah's barrenness. And there's some parallel. Dry land, the dry womb. It's sort of a common seed of it. What, is, what do they do? What does Sarah do? Please, you Egyptian fertile womb. In both scenarios, Egypt is the fertile place. Whether it's the place or the person. In Genesis 12, we read about Abram's weak faith. He's afraid, fearful. So, he comes up with a scheme to lie, to find a way to save his own life. In Genesis 16, Sarah's weak in faith, and she's fearful. And she comes up with a scheme to save her legacy. In Genesis 12, we read that Sarah was quite passive. Even when Abram basically says, say you're my sister so that they'll not kill me if they want to take you as a wife, and then Pharaoh decides to take her as a wife, and we have nothing, we have no response, nothing from Sarah. He's a passive one in that context. In Genesis 16, Abram's quite passive. When he does speak, it puts it off himself. In Genesis 12, sexual morality is a key part of the story. However, it's probable that it didn't happen, that it was rescued before. But here in chapter 16, sexual morality is a key part of the story. The Egyptian pharaoh, after being plagued, receives mercy from God. The Egyptian servant, after being mistreated, receives mercy from God. Do you catch the like parallelism here? As one scholar said about Genesis 12 and, and other passages, the parallelism is too obvious to be coincidental. Too plain, too obvious. Ironically, in this text, then, we actually, or maybe we should instead of say ironically, providentially, we actually get a little sympathy for the Egyptian, don't we? We have sympathy for Hagar and her son Ishmael, and we ought to. And in turn, in a turn of God's providential design, Many years from now, there will be no sympathy from the Egyptians toward the sons of Abram in their captivity. In fact, you kind of get, and I don't know if you watch or are involved at all in superhero movies or comics or all that sort of stuff, but they always show the backstory of the individual. You kind of get a little backstory for the whole Egypt-Israel 
bought problems with each other here. You know what's another fascinating part of God's providence and design in this? Several hundred years from now, Abram's son, great-great-grandson, Joseph, will be sold into slavery into Egypt. Do you know who sells him into slavery? The text says in Genesis 39, a band of Ishmaelites. Well, that's the son of Hagar. That's the there. In other words, there's all these kind of interweaving of these two sons. In other words, wow, if Sarah and Abram would have seen down the ages what was going to happen through their descendants, both with Egypt and the Ishmaelites, they probably would have not tried to help God's promises along this way. But that old saying is true, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. But notable in this contrast between Genesis 12 and Genesis 16 is the presence of Egypt. And I believe Moses described, the author here, wants the readers and us to remember, don't trust in Egypt. Don't go to the fertile land or the fertile womb of the Egyptians. Don't trust in Egypt. Trust the divine promises. Egypt is often in the Scripture a metaphor for the world, the unbelieving culture, those that are hostile against God's people. And they often appear to have the answers for the struggles and problems I'm facing. Don't trust them. Don't put your confidence in man, in Egypt, in the world, in the prosperity or the wisdom of the culture. They cannot save you, they cannot satisfy you ultimately, and in fact, only shame will be yours. That seems to be a very clear lesson coming through with this parallelism. But I want to ask you another question. Think about this. Did you notice any other parallelism in this story besides Genesis 12? It was a little bit more hinted at, not as explicit. But I think I want I, I think, to think about that. Is there other sort of echoes here? Of course, you know, because I'm separating it up, that there are. Uh, one commentator said it this way. In chapter, in Genesis 16, goes into the very beginning, verse 3. Um, I'm sorry. Verse 2. And Abram listened or obeyed the voice of Sarah. Genesis 3, 17. It doesn't translate exactly the same, but it's the same in the Hebrew. And the only two times in Scripture this phrase is found. And Adam obeyed the voice of his wife. Now, one commentator said this, the fact that the phrase, Adam obeyed the voice of his wife, or obeyed the voice of his wife, occurs only here in Genesis 3.17, would be subjective on its own. Meaning, that's a very clear, twice this phrase is used, and there's an echo in it. Now, the point is not, don't listen to your wife. That's not the point. Just as we went through Genesis chapter 3, that wasn't the point of the fall. Right? The point of those two phrases being together is to draw us together in that, to see the two occasions together. And once you then see it through that first phrase, you begin to see several other echoes from Genesis 3, the fall of humanity with Adam and Eve. 
and Genesis 16 for Paul, Abram, and Sarah. What are some of those connections? Well, it even is in Genesis 3, 6. Eve, she took Lachat, and of its fruits, and ate. She also gave Natan to her husband with her, and he ate. In Genesis 16, 3, then Sarah's wife took Lachat, Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave Natan, her to her husband Abram, to be his wife. And then it says, and he went in. In other words, it's even echoing the same process of the fall. And remember, Eve is tempted because the fruit makes sense. It's the wise choice. It is able to make her wise. Sarah's surrogacy makes sense. It's the culturally wise choice. Both accounts, God has given a clear word. In Genesis 3, God said you can eat of every tree, but don't eat of this one. In Genesis chapter 16, based on Genesis 15, God has given a clear word of promise. I will give you a seed. Interestingly, Adam goes silent and passive in Genesis 3. In Genesis 16, Abram goes silent and passive when he ought to be leading. Both Adam and Eve shift blame. Abram and Sarah shift blame to each other, just like Adam. And then, of course, probably the most similar echo is the devastation that follows. In Adam and Eve, the first fall, all of their children, humanity, now goes to war with one another. Even in their first two children, Cain and Abel. Wow, what a unique, like, sort of connection, right? So, Abram ends up with two children here. Ishmael and Isaac, because of this. They go to war against each other, eventually. I think the reason why there is an echo here from Genesis 3 and Genesis 16, from a theological standpoint, is that I think Moses wants us to see these events as another fall. Similar scenario. So then you have in Genesis 3, you have human patriarchs, the mother and father of humanity, who do not believe the words of God, being weakness in their faith, they take it in their own hands to do as they see best. And here in Genesis 16, you have Abram and Sarah, the mother and father of all spiritual children of God. And they, having received the promises of God, yet show weakness in their faith, do not heed the words of the Lord and take it in their own hands to do as they see fit. Now, we'll come to hit that again in a moment, a second parallel in our application for us. Mentioned and as I said, the story isn't over here, right? There's so much more, but that's next week. But when we see a text of Scripture like this, remember we, we, we realize in the Old Testament there's often a theological and moral and Christological application in it. The moral is usually not the primary point of the text. 
we've said this multiple times. The primary point of an Old Testament text is not, not be like Abram or be like Sarah or don't be like Abram or don't be like Sarah. That's not the primary point. It would be error for us not to recognize that we can learn very valuable lessons from the lives of the patriarchs and those that follow, right? So even though it's not the point, main point, I think that is always undergirding the text. There is expressions here, and this is obviously is a don't sort of application in the moral sense. Now, I don't think, though this is true as far as it goes, so I want to make sure everybody understands this. Yeah, I think there is an application. You can anyway, so don't have sexual relations with your servants. Like, yeah, right? obviously. Uh, that's bad. That's not the main issue here. I like the way Alan Ross put it. He said, once the way of faith was abandoned, and the way of human calculation was engaged, the family was caught up in a continuing chain of cause and effect that troubled them for ages. And if we want to talk about a moral lesson in this text, don't abandon the way of faith for the way of human calculation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean to your own understanding. That's an important takeaway from this. Christian, believer, stand firm on God's revealed Word. The same lesson that came from Genesis 3 comes through Genesis 16. Believe the Word of God and stand on His inerrant Word. Though cultural, societal, sensual pressures tease with their brilliance, stand in the way of faith. But there is a, I think, more important application theologically. What do we glean theologically from this? Not from the second half, which we will next week. Another author, I, I like what he said, Victor Hamilton, commenting on Abram and Sarah's situation, said, instead of saying, after God's promise, we're going to have a baby, they say, we've got to have a baby. And whenever one sees the fruit of God's promises as something to be achieved rather than received, all sorts of options present themselves. Divine promises are gracious gifts to be received with grateful hearts, not produced with busy hands and human efforts. As in the first covenant to Abram and Sarah, so in the new covenant with Jesus Christ. The promise of justification, salvation, sanctification, glorification, the promise of redemption and forgiveness, these are promises to be received as God's greatest gifts. By faith we receive the gifts of God, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saves us. No pragmatic efforts can forward or fulfill the blessings of God in salvation. The Christian reception for the promises of God is He has done better, not do better. Okay? Receive the promise of grace in the work of God in your life. 
as theological, but there is a Christological connection. And this goes back to the Genesis 3 context. The Bible says that Jesus taught concerning himself, beginning with Moses. Moses wrote this. This text ought to draw to Christ. How in the world does it do that? If the most faithful, God-fearing family can have such a dreadful lapse and weakness of faith, then what of us? If the father and mother of humanity could fall so quickly, and then the father and mother of spiritual humanity can fall in the same way, then what of me on Monday morning? Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Humility. Do not have an elevated opinion of your own righteousness, your obedience. But Paul the Apostle wrote, there is none righteous, no, not one. But, behold Jesus the Christ, inward Son of God, Messianic Son of Man. He does not grow weak in faith, even as Abram, who rejoiced to see his day, did. Instead, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. The shame that Sarah felt, Jesus felt, but said, No, I will not let that shame define me. Instead, he prayed in the garden, though sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. At the prospect of the shame of the cross, he yet prayed, Not my will but your will be done. And so where Adam and Eve disobeyed, and where Abram and Sarah disobeyed, and where Adam and Eve were weak in faith, and where Abram and Sarah were weak in faith, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was strong in faith. And He, as God, alone, faithful and true. And He fulfills all righteousness. He does not grow weary in doing well. So perfect and obedient.